Support for this podcast and the following message come from Lagunitas Brewing Company, challenging the status quo and crafting stories along the way. Featuring a wide range of innovative craft brews and non-alcoholic options, it's good to have friends. Learn more at Lagunitas.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. For my guest, actor Richard E. Grant, the story that defines his life has not been his rise to fame or his prolific film and television career. It's not his writing, directing, or interviewing, or even his long list of famous friends. It's his marriage of 35 years to Joan Washington, an acclaimed dialect coach whom he met during his early years as a struggling actor. Joan died in 2021 at the age of 74 from lung cancer. The last eight months of her life, Joan and Richard spent every minute of every day together, Richard documenting their time through journaling. He's written a book about their lives together called A Pocket Full of Happiness. Richard E. Grant rose to fame after starring in the 1987 cult classic With Nail and I. Since then, he's gone on to star in dozens of television shows and films, including The Iron Lady and Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. In 2005, he wrote and directed a comedy drama film loosely based on his childhood growing up in what was then Swaziland in Southern Africa. In 2018, he was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in Can You Ever Forgive Me? A Pocket Full of Happiness is a collection of Grant's diaries during his last days with Joan, interwoven with stories about the life they built together. Richard E. Grant, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tonya. It's been two years since Joan passed away from lung cancer, and I'm just wondering, how do you measure the time since she's been gone? Uh, difficult to, to kind of quantify that because it feels like a navigation round uh, or through the abyss of grief that you don't you don't ever get over it. I don't think, but you you have to find a way around it. And she very generously said to my daughter and I four days before she died to try and find a pocket full of happiness in each day, acknowledging that yes, of course we would be sad that she was no longer around. Um, but she said, "I charge you both to do that." And at the time, we were so overwhelmed by the tsunami of grief that hit us that it didn't really register. And then we realized that on a daily basis, to rather than thinking, oh, you've got to win the lottery or Nobel Prize or you know do something extraordinary, to be more mindful of your everyday experience and focus on and celebrate something that is joyful or happy-making. Um, and, of course, built into this simple phrase is, again, license to feel joy or happiness rather than think, oh, my goodness, I, you know, I should feel guilty because I'm, you know, I'm having a good day today. You know what I, I also love about this idea of a pocket full of happiness is that it also, mm -hmm. it not just acknowledges that you can have a little bit of joy, but it also acknowledges the grief. You know, it's kind of like saying, it's going to suck. You're going to go through it. Yeah. And you don't have to pretend <laughs> that it's all good. You just have to find a little yeah. bit of sunshine, you know? Yeah. As long as you have hope, I think that you can deal with almost anything. And I, that was the most challenging part of Joan's illness is that she said to us, uh, I think once this new miracle drug that she had been prescribed, she felt that it had stopped working and it had theoretically was supposed to give her much more time. And she was of the tiny percent that it didn't, is that when she said, I know that how I feel now, I'm not going to feel any better in a week's time. And 
you know, I, I know from just having COVID or having flu or the cold, you think you always know that there's a possibility that you're going to get better. Mm. Um, but, you know, you don't have that option. Was that hard to accept? Because, you know, I mean, I think culturally we we just want to sit in this. But no, have hope. It's going to get better. Um, even yeah. in an illness like that. And it seems that she, once she realized that she was not going to get better and she wasn't feeling better, she was charging mm-hmm. to you to accept that. Yeah. She was so determined that... Um, she said, promise me one thing, Swaz, which was her nickname for me because of where I grew up. She said, do not let me die in a hospital or a hospice. I want to be with you in our house, you know, holding each other's hands. And, you know, of course, you, you hope that you'll be, you're going to be able to fulfill that. But the reality is you have, you have no idea. But as it turned out, that is exactly what happened. Um, and she was so exhausted by the disease, but, you know, as it progresses and accelerates that she was in a state of such exhaustion that she said to us my daughter and I yeah probably about eight or ten days before she died she said I'm asking your permission to let me go Mm. and that is such a powerful thing because on the one hand it's it's such a contradiction Tanya because you want the person to live as long as possible but at the same time if they are saying I am exhausted by this I long to to end this. Uh, it's a push-me-pull-you of wanting what they want mm-hmm. and also selfishly wanting what, what you want. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's just the nature of it. This book is your third memoir-type book. It's so profoundly intimate because, as I mentioned, it's mostly a collection of your diary entries during Joan's illness, and it's interwoven with stories about your lives together. And there's also some exciting Hollywood stories, which we'll get to later. But, (laughs) But the book is basically a love letter to Joan, who was, as you write, a fiercely private person. Did that give you pause about how forthcoming you'd be in this book? Uh, That's a very valid and a great question because I had published film diaries called With Nails in 1997, uh, which chronicled, you know, the A to Z of never having been in a movie and then ending up working in Los Angeles with Coppola, Altman, Jane Campion, Scorsese, you know, the greats, um, people that I absolutely hero-worshipped. So that is a kind of rags-to-riches story, but it doesn't involve the level of personal detail that mm-hmm. the pocket full of happiness does. And when I, because I've kept a diary ever since I was 10 years old, having inadvertently witnessed my mother uh, in flagrante with my father's best friend on the front seat of the car, you know, late at night that I wasn't supposed to witness. So not having anybody to tell, I instinctively started keeping a diary and have done ever since as a way of trying to understand the world and, you know, considering the, the people that I've met and where I've worked, it has been the one way of somehow making the, the unreality of that feel real. So in terms of this this diary, I had absolutely no intention of publishing this whatsoever. And I was on a Caribbean beach on New Year's Day, the beginning of last year, and posted a thing, walking uh, a video saying that, you know, I felt like a a turtle that had lost its shell and that, you know, the loss of my wife felt like my compass had been broken. And it had such an extraordinary social media response that it then elicited 
various publishers in London calling my literary agent and saying, would you publish a memoir? And I was very emphatic about that. I said, absolutely not, unequivocally not. And my daughter very smartly said to me, I think that it would help you process the grief that you're going through, which is so intense. And she said, why not interweave how you met each other and, you know, weaving through your Oscar stories and how you first met and your combined careers um, how about doing that? So I said, well, I will do that on the proviso because I didn't want to threaten my or jeopardize my relationship with my daughter whatsoever. She's the only child I have. We have. Um, I said, I will write the whole thing out. And once you have read it, you have the veto power to say one paragraph can be published, mm. the entire lot or half or none of it. Mm-hmm. And she very generously read it and said, this is exactly how it is, and it it feels like a real record of your, as you said earlier, it's a love letter to her mother, my wife. You mentioned your mother. Um, She -hmm. passed away this month at the age of 96. Um, It's been a hard few years for you, Richard. My sincerest condolences um, on the loss of your mother. As you also mentioned, you had this traumatic experience when you were 10 years old, um, seeing, mm-hmm. witnessing your mother having an affair. You all had a complicated relationship. And I can't help but think about how in many ways the grounding for this book comes from you learning to do what you did all of your life as a kid to cope. And that's to write, to express your pain as a mechanism mm-hmm. for healing. Um, a few weeks after Joan died, you actually went to stay with your mother for a few weeks. And, and it kind of mm-hmm. revealed something to you, important to you. It made you see the way you're choosing to live your life in love in contrast to the way that you were raised. You know, I think that it's probably generational as much as anything. But uh, my mother was very untactile and emotionally withheld, certainly towards me. And obviously complicated by the fact that she then found out that... I had witnessed this, her... She didn't know in the moment. Infidelity. She didn't didn't know at the time. She found out. um, I told her 30 years later. Wow. But it had led to a sort of enormous amount of estrangement when I was growing up. Um, And I think that staying with her, you know, four weeks after Joan had died, having not seen her for four years because of COVID and everything else, um, it's so underlined how important Joan and I placed fidelity and trust, complete trust, as the bedrock of our relationship, probably way more than anybody else getting married for the first time might have done. I think because her first husband was um, an inveterate philanderer and was unfaithful throughout their marriage. Joan. And because I had witnessed... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And because I had witnessed this thing with my mother and then had to parent my father essentially through my teenage years because he descended into very violent alcoholism after my mother had left him that i i felt the weight of that um what that infidelity had wrought upon his psyche and therefore it it you know subsequently affected me so i thought Firstly, that I would never get married, never have a child. But then, of course, what I didn't uh, reckon on is what John Lennon quipped, you know, a few days before he was murdered, that life is what happens in between making your plans. And 
at the age of 26, I met Joan Washington, fell in love, and then we had a child. So yes. <laughs> all of that was turned on its head. But we, you know, we were so hell-bent on being faithful to one another, um, lest we repeat what had happened in her first marriage or in my parents' marriage. You and Joan met in 1982. You were a young, struggling mm-hmm. actor. You were looking for yeah. a voice coach. And you you actually didn't. You say you didn't think you would get married, but you actually also didn't think you'd ever really fall in love. Yeah, I thought that, you know, I, uh, because I'd seen the damage that um, so-called love had wrought upon my parents, I thought, well, the best way to protect myself is never have a child and certainly never get married. Um, and then, you know, of course... You do fall in love, and when I did, uh, you lose all. You know, you. It's it's in the phrase falling. You know, you you have no control over that, and you hope that love is then the safety net that stops you hitting the ground. Joan was was quite a bit older than you. Was there ever any drama ten years around? Older. Yeah, ten years older. Any drama around mm-hmm. that age difference? Uh, the drama was that. The difference in our social and career status was couldn't be more extreme. I was an out-of-work actor who was um, a waiter, you know, a server in, in a restaurant in Covent Garden in London. And she was, you know, at the top of her profession as a dialect coach working for all the major theatre companies in London and working on movies as well. And so when I first got my uh, an acting job, um, of which I was properly paid in London with... Um, television actors' names that had kind of passed their sell-by date. While I was doing that, thinking, oh my goodness, I've got this big break. She was coaching Daniel Day-Lewis and uh, Mel Gibson and Liam Neeson and everybody on the remake of The Bounty in in Hawaii, in, in, in Hawaii and Tahiti. So that, you know, it was a measure of how much she obviously put faith in me that I was going to, at some point, make it and crack through. But, you know, uh, it's an extraordinary thing if somebody loves you enough to believe that you are going to succeed and not be a sort of right. professional embarrassment for your entire life. Anyway, I made up for it when I finally got, you know, I got a movie break in 1986 and that changed my life. Yes. But, I mean, what a love affair the two of you had. She she actually wrote you a letter in early 1983, so that was pretty early in your relationship. I think the two of you were apart from each other working. Yeah. Can I have uh-huh. you just read a little excerpt from it? So, can, do you want me to give the intro of in, in early 1983 when Joan was coaching on three different productions at the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre in London? I was doing a lunch hour play in a pub theatre on a profit share basis, which meant zero pay. She wrote me a letter declaring that... The world feels beautiful to me at the moment. I've never felt quite like this before about anyone. I can't find the right words to tell you how I feel because the sensations are new to me. I so love everything about it. Just being in the same room with you is wonderful. You're a very special person. I've always thought so, even before I fell in love with you. So open, so generous, so everything. I want you to be happy, to be successful, to feel complete, whatever happens between us. At the moment, I want us to happen together. Read The Good Morrow by John Donne. That's how I feel about you. 
I mean, I'm just thinking yeah. about how this new generation will never know that feeling of anticipation for a letter like this, a handwritten letter <laughs> arriving in your mailbox, and the tactile feeling of it. I mean, you had the letter still in order to, to be able to put it in the book. Um, yeah, well, Tony, how that came about is because I'm an obsessive eater of Christmas puddings, which are like a very dense, rich fruitcake um, that is a tradition that people eat on Christmas Day in England um, that I know doesn't exist in America. Anyway, I eat one of these once a month and let them in the January sales. And I found a cake tin that I was sure had a piece of rogue cake left in it while I was writing the memoir. And I opened the tin and found a stash of letters oh and aerograms that Joan had written to me and that we'd written to each other. And it felt like, because they weren't in my diaries, it was a way of getting her voice absolutely authentically word for word as she wrote them uh, to me into the book. And so I did that. As Joan wrote in that letter, she said you were unlike anyone she had ever met. And I've actually read that about you <laughs> from lots of different people who have that same description. I mean, of course, your openness and honesty, um, your dedication to the truth and the way that you live, but also your quirks. You like to smell everything. You did this on your yep. first official date when she cooked for you. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, Tony, I don't, I don't tell you, I don't understand that that everybody doesn't smell everything. Um, you know, animals do, and we're animals. So I, 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 it astonishes me that every single person does not touch everything in sight and smell everything in sight. And but when we're talking about I've smelling, realize, like you have a meal, yeah. like Joan cooked you a meal that first date, you took the plate yeah. and you put it to your nose. That's how. Do you think you have yeah. a more developed sense of smell? Than the rest of us, um, maybe. I I don't know. It's impossible to judge. But I've never smoked, or um, and I'm allergic to alcohol. So maybe my my sense of taste and smell is is heightened. But you know, it's, it's difficult to. I, I don't know how you how you measure that. But she did worry and say, "Is there something wrong with my food that you put your nose into the plate?" And I said, "No, no, no. This is it's like the overture of the meal. That's the first hit that you get." is, you know, to smell it all over. Right. It's the first part of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As you, you mentioned, Joan was a legend for helping actors um, not just perfect their national dialects, but also regional and local lilts. She helped Penelope Cruz mm -hmm. to sound Greek and lots of different people. Um, it's mm -hmm. so impressive what she did. And I'm always so fascinated, especially by British actors who can perfect regional accents from the United States. Um, did she ever help you at home with your scripts when you were going through after that first initial meeting where she, she worked with you? Oh, yeah. But uh, she was, as a res I think the equivalent would be if you try and teach the person that you love most in the world or somebody in your family to give them driving lessons, uh, your patience with them is probably far less than That's if so it's true. somebody who you've never met before. <laughs> yes, yes. So... My point being is that she she said, for goodness sake, stick to the work, stop flirting with me, stick to the point, don't mess around, you know, all that stuff. So the last thing that she coached me on was I had to play a working class blue collar um, aging drag queen in a movie version of a West End musical called Everybody's Talking About Jamie, in which I played a... Um, 
a drag queen from Sheffield in the north of England with a northern accent. And she said, you have got to get this right. Otherwise, you're going to be in a professional embarrassment to me. It'll reflect very badly on me if you yes. haven't got this accent right. So I was pretty terrified doing that with her. But she was very, very strict indeed. But I suppose she had to be. Yes. Let's take a short break. My guest today is award-winning actor Richard E. Grant. He's written a book about his life and his wife of 35 years, Joan Washington, called A Pocket Full of Happiness. Washington was an acclaimed voice coach who helped actors perfect their dialect for films, television, and theater. She died in 2021 from lung cancer. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Hi, this is Molly C.B. Nesper, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Seth Kelly, also a producer at Fresh Air. If you like the Fresh Air podcast, we think there's a pretty good chance that you'll also like the Fresh Air newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter written by us, the people who help make the show. You'll get all the week's interviews and reviews in one place. Plus, staff recommendations, interviews from the archive, bonus audio, and what's coming up on the show. Imagine an email you enjoy getting. To subscribe, go to whyy.org slash Fresh air. Let's get back to my conversation with Richard E. Grant. He's written a memoir titled A Pocket Full of Happiness about the life he created with his late wife of 35 years, Joan Washington. Richard, you and Joan had these endearing names for each other. She called you Swazi, as you mentioned earlier to mm-hmm. us. Do you have a, a nickname for your daughter, your Olivia? We call her Oily because... Uh, we knew that we were having a daughter uh, prior to her birth. And Joan said to me when we were driving around Scotland, she said, you know, with your length of torso and you're, you're, you're almost two meters tall, I think that with your length of face, the chances are our child is going to look like olive oil from you know, Popeye. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we started calling her Oily before she was born. And indeed, she was like a little spider monkey. She was so long her torso was so long, so she fitted the bill. But we've called her Oily ever since, and she knows that. And you know, it's referred to in the book as well. Your friend list reads like a call sheet for A-list actors and dignitaries. Sir Elton John, <laughs> King Charles, and Camilla Parker Bowles. You even recount an interview you did with our former president, Donald Trump, back in 2013 um, mm-hmm. for this series that you were doing. But the story of your friendship with Barbara Streisand is sweet and funny to me because it shows that even celebrities can be fanatics too. And you you and Joan actually bonded over Barbara during those first few months of dating. 
Well, I think that if she if she'd found out that I was so obsessed with Streisand at this point, she might have run for the hills because she'd been <laughs> the first movie that she'd coached on as a dialect coach was um, Streisand's directorial debut, Yentl, Yentl. in nineteen eighty one. Yes, before I'd come to England. So, but uh, I had written um, a fan letter to Barbara Streisand when I was fourteen years old in nineteen seventy. One seventy-two, and um, because I'd read that she had had marital, um, um, romance problems with Ryan O'Neill, and and I and she was sick and tired of the press, and of course I was reading this in the press, so I wrote her this letter, you know, with great uh, <laughs> integrity and devotion, saying, you know, I've been a lifelong fan of yours at the age of, and uh, please come to Swaziland. We have a lovely house and a pool, and nobody will <laughs> bother you here. You, you know, we've got invited her to, like, town with, get over her heartbreak. Yeah, it's your place. <laughs> with one cinema, you can come and stay as long as you like. I'm, you know, hoping for uh, a hasty reply. Well, of course, that never happened. So during the, um, Oscar, the run-up to the Oscars in 2019, early 2019, Joe and I had a day off from all my press duties and went up to Malibu for lunch and I said we're just going to drive a little bit a little bit beyond here and she said we don't know anybody here and I said yeah yeah just indulge me went down this cul-de-sac and turned around at the end and stopped the car got out and she said what are you doing and I said you know just give me five minutes she said is that Barbara Streisand's gates <laughs> and I said yes it is she said Swaz you're going to be arrested the Oscars are in 10 days time get a grip you, know, you do not want me deported from America or arrested. Get back in the car. I said, give me two minutes. So I went, pressed the buzzer. What should I expect, Johnny? That Barbara Streisand is going to come out and say, ah, you must come in. I got your fan letter. No, of course not. The security guy comes up and he says, what are you doing here? Uh, what are you delivering? And I said, no, no. You know, I'm, I wrote Barbara Streisand a fan letter when I was you know, 14 years old, 100 years ago. I've been nominated for an Oscar. And... Uh, I said, may I have permission to take a selfie outside her gates? And he said, yeah, sure. It's a public highway. You, you know, polite to ask. So I did. I then posted a picture of myself on Twitter and Instagram standing in front of her gates and a copy of the fan mail that I uh, fan letter I'd written to her, you know, way back when. And the next day, Oily called me up from London. I could hear her friends laughing in the background. And she said, <laughs> Dad, have you looked at your Twitter feed today? And I said, no, I haven't. I said, what's so funny? And she said, have a look. Barbara Streisand has replied to your tweet that you sent yesterday. And I said, don't mess with me. I am. This is too cruel. You can't mess with my psyche. This is, it means far too much. Do not do this. It's, 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 you know, it's too painful. And she said, Dad, get a grip. Have a look. She has replied. And indeed, she had. And, oh, my goodness, when I read that, the email that she had replied to me, I just burst into tears. I could not believe that the person that I had you know, heroin worshipped for decades had actually replied to me. So then I met her at the Oscars and then subsequently at Donna Karen's house um, a year and a half later. And I had this, you know, almost two hour one to one conversation with her, which was everything that I could possibly have imagined. And I did say to her at the end of it, I have a confession to make. She said, what's that? I said, I have commissioned a statue of your head for my yard, the garden in London. And she looked at me and she said, you are crazy. And I said, yes, I know that. And she said, no, you are crazy. And I said, I stand guilty as charged. Anyway, it's in my garden. It's in the, the, I've the been trying to envision this statue. <laughs> this, it, is it, it's, yeah. it's like a, please describe it's it. It's two foot tall. 
It's two foot tall. It's of her. It's from her neck up to the top of her head. And it's angled so that you see it from favoring her left profile. What is it made is out of? Which is how she likes to get shot. Um, it's made out of a dense silicon and uh, fiberglass that a sculptor um, I commissioned to make it. So that it would be we weatherproof. Um, and, and, and did you say it's from her left side? Because that's her good side. She likes to take photos from that yeah, side. Yeah, obviously, obviously you can walk around it and you can see every side, but um, it's positioned so that um, there's a mirror behind it as well so that you can, <laughs> you can see both sides, but it favors her left profile. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Sounds like you keep everything because you still had the letters. You still had copies of things that you wrote. Oh, yeah. I'm a hoarder. Tanya, I'm a hoarder. My house is maximalist um, from floor to ceiling. And both Joan and I and our daughter as well have inherited this absolute obsession with collecting stuff. Let's take a quick break. Our guest today... Okay is award-winning actor Richard E. Grant. He's written a memoir about his 35-year marriage to his late wife, Joan Washington, titled A Pocketful of Happiness. Shortly before Joan died, she told Richard and their daughter to find a pocketful of happiness in each day. This is Fresh Air. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. The news can be disorienting, and it can be really hard to remember how we got here. That's why we started the Throughline podcast. Every week, we take you on a cinematic trip into the past to better understand the present. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley, and my guest today is award-winning actor Richard E. Grant. He's written a book titled A Pocket Full of Happiness, which is a love letter to his late wife, Joan Washington. Richard, you were nominated for several awards, including an Oscar for your supporting role in the black comedy, Can You Ever Forgive Me? And you write about the sweet moment when you got the call, the moment that you and Joan shared, which was, was utter disbelief, as you describe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's the idea that growing up in the smallest country in southern in the southern hemisphere which was then called Swaziland now called Eswatini that I did um literally had one movie house and didn't have television until after I'd left in 1980 so the idea that a you could possibly become you know you could make it as an actor let alone uh, have a career in the movies was so fantastical that 
I suppose, again, keeping a diary is a way of of trying to sort of bottle that, of making what is seems so unreal, real. Um, but, you know, Joan was incredibly supportive and thrilled for me that I got it, but she really floored me because on the the night before I was due to fly with her to go to the Oscar ceremony in February 2019, she said, Swaz, I've got something to tell you. And I said, what's that? And she said, I'm not coming to the Oscars. And I said, what do you mean you're not coming? She said, no... Said I'm five foot three. I haven't had, you know, fifteen years of plastic surgery. I am going to be dwarfed by the Amazon height of all the women in Jimmy Choo heels, all trying to speak to you. And she said it's just a nightmare for me um, because it's like being invisible. She said take oily. She loves all that. She'll be six foot in her heels and she'll enjoy it. And she said you'll see the wisdom of of my decision subsequently and I was absolutely furious and of course when I got there um, I realised that she was right because everything that she predicted would happen and of course she didn't see me literally prostrating myself in front of Barbara Streisand at the governor's <laughs> ball afterwards <laughs> and which Oily then said Thank- this is exactly why mum shouldn't have been here and she was she was thrilled yes. anyway, that's a very long no, reply I'd... to your short question oh absolutely no it's not I mean it was it, it... It's what happened, and it is. I saw the beautiful pictures of you and your your daughter on that night. But I I mentioned earlier how Joan was so private, and you're so public. Was was that a delicate dance? Your extroversion as a as a famous actor and her desire to be private. Uh, I think that she she never sought. Um, she said the very nature of her work is to be that it's invisible. That if you're noticing an actor's accent, then it's she hasn't succeeded in in self-effacing her her work out of the picture as it were so i think that it was the attraction of opposites that the fact that i was so have been so open about everything and that she isn't she also she came from a very uh secure family background um whereas mine wasn't so my obsession with um the toxicity of secrets in families didn't apply to hers in the same way. So she understood where I was coming from, but she said, oh, for goodness sake. I think if she had known that I was publishing this book, she said, oh, for goodness sake, Swales, who would, who would want to know about, you know, <laughs> what, what happened to us? And, you know, uh, it's what I've loved about it is that it, it's kept me able to talk about her and our life together. So it feels like, it keeps her alive longer in some odd way, if that, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. Did but she... you're right. It is a contradiction yeah. being that she was so private and I'm you know, very open book about everything. Did she have that same sensibility of awe, though, and wonder? I mean, because you're a fanatic about so many people, you know, <laughs> including no, Barbara. She, was, she is the most unstarstruck person imaginable, which was perfect for her job because I think if she'd gone into every job being as sort of wide-eyed and tongue-tied as I get with people that I usually admire, um, she wouldn't have been able to do her job properly. So she treated, and I think this is why the former Prince Charles, now King Charles, um, liked and got on with her so well, is because she treated prince or pauper with exactly the same uh, attitude. She wasn't impressed by anything she said the person has got to impress me with their kindness and their humanity, not their title or their status. Mm. 
You know, something I'm curious about is someone who writes a journal every day. So do you mm-hmm. carve out do you carve out time in your day every day? Is it at the in the morning? Is it at night? Do you skip days? I do it at the end of the day. When okay. do you do yours? It depends. Sometimes I do it in the morning and sometimes I do it at night, but I've been keeping a journal since I was 10 too. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And are you are you published? No, no. They're just stacks and stacks of journals that I keep. Tanya, and Tanya, I think like Tanya, maybe come on, come maybe on. my kids will want them when they're, you know, old. I also have journals that I write oh, to bet them. They do. Yeah, that it like yeah. just letters oh, to them. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm fascinated to know was there ever a time maybe when you were young in Swaziland where you envisioned these yeah. journals being a record for your thoughts in books being published as you are now? Never. Never even not for a nanosecond did that cross my mind because I thought that, that, you know, that my chances of actually becoming a professional actor were so scoffed at and remote um, an impossibility that, no, it didn't. It was, I, it was like just fantasy. It was like being every 12-year-old in 1969 when I was growing up wanted to go to the moon because Neil Armstrong had set foot on it in you know, July that year. So, But so Armstrong, right. actor. Who fulfilled that in your mind's imagination, though, for acting? Because there had to be some folks that you were looking up to to even see that as a possibility. Oh, I fixated on Donald Sutherland because he grew up in a tiny town in Canada, was over six foot tall, had a very long face and didn't look like Robert Redford. And I thought, oh, well, if Donald Sutherland can make it as an actor, (laughs) maybe there's a chance that that there's room for another long faced person. So, um, yeah, he kept me going. And then that kept me going for... You know, until I was 12 years old. And then I saw Funny Girl with Mm. another person that I'd never seen before who had a very long face and a Mm -hmm. long nose. And I thought, oh, this is Barbara Streisand here. And when she was singing I'm the Greatest Star, I thought, oh, she's not singing this to anybody else but me. And so Donald was shifted out and Barbara then became the person that I thought, well, you know, talent and beauty and all those things and her extraordinary everything – it was something to, you know, be galvanized by. Let's take a short break. My guest today is award-winning actor Richard E. Grant. He's written a book about his life and his wife of 35 years, Joan Washington, called A Pocket Full of Happiness. Washington was an acclaimed voice coach who helped actors perfect their dialect for films, television, and theater. She died in 2021 from lung cancer. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. On the Code Switch Podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. 
you know, I was thinking in reading the book, and, and you give in detail those days when you were caring for for Joan um, in her last mm-hmm. days when she was very sick. And there's this complicated dance that that often happens when a person is caring for another. Sometimes there's there's resentment for the actual caretaker. Sometimes there's resentment from the caretaker for the person suffering. And sometimes that can cloud a relationship, you know, especially towards the end because there's there's so much wrapped up in all of that. How did you navigate those tough times? Because you you bore the brunt of Joan's realization that she was losing her freedom and that, that her life was ending. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have anybody else to lash out at, if you like. And so when she got very exhausted or very frustrated, I was the person who obviously bore the brunt of that. But exhaustion is the thing that really undoes you. And the um, there was a palliative care um, a company called Longfield um, that was a few miles away from the cottage where we were living in the countryside at this point um, because she was too fragile to come back and be in London. And uh, they said to us two weeks before Joan died, we will have two palliative nurses come in for 10 minutes you know, at breakfast, lunch, and at dinner um, just to change the bed, give you 10 minutes of being on your own. And in the final 10 days of her life, they said, don't feel guilty about this, but we're going to have a palliative nurse. It will come at 10.30 at night and go through the night with your wife until 6 o'clock in the morning, which will allow you and your daughter time to sleep and catch up Mm. because otherwise you're going to be, you'll be incapable, you'll be wrecked. And it was an absolute godsend to have that. And I'm indebted to these palliative carers beyond measure. And I'm raising money as in every possible way that I can to support them because it's all voluntary, mm-hmm. um, not state-subsidized. So that really helped. And I think that, again, when, a st- you know, talking about the car driving, car lesson analogy earlier, if you're trying to teach somebody in your own family, Joan was much more mindful of being impatient with palliative carers who, who came in um, for these short spurts than she would have been if I had suggested, you know, shall we change the sheets or shall we move you around or whatever. You write in great detail about Joan's last moments. Um, you mm-hmm. were there at, at her bedside, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You told her it was okay to let go. Yeah. Because she had asked me, um, she said, Swaz, you know, please let me go. Don't make, don't make me hang on. And I said, yes, absolutely, you must. And uh, I sat on you know, the final afternoon on the Thursday, the 2nd of September, 2021, and I was talking to her the whole time, and she was drifting in and out of sleep and consciousness, um, just stroking her hand talking to her. And at 7 p.m. that evening, I noticed that her. I thought that her hand was cooling in mine, and I thought, what do I do? Do I let go and call Oily, who was sitting out in the garden with her friends, or I, I dare not let go? And I, I thought that her, physically her hand was getting cooler in mine, and her breathing got very, very shallow all of a sudden. And there was a long, longer gaps between each intake of breath. And then at 7.30... She inhaled, and then I counted, and then it turned out to be her last um, her last breath. So I was so grateful that 
it was so peaceful and calm, and I felt so privileged that I was there holding her hand and talking to her right up until she, you know, was no more. About that moment you write, it's the sheer aloneness of being alone, wherever you go, Mm -hmm. whoever and however many people you meet and play with, you return alone. Is that a feeling that ever subsides, or or is it something that you want to feel? Both. Uh, You are overwhelmed by that, that isolation in the first months that follow. And then you get used to it, and I think because we'd been together for almost four decades, I was so habituated to what her response to anything would be. Like if she said to me, so, right, you know, when I'm finished talking to you today, she'll say, well, how old is is Tanya? What was her accent? Um, What was the quality of her voice? You know, she'd want to know all those details. And so I will not walk out of the studio and go, well, Joan, uh, Tanya sounded like this and this and this. But it it is an ongoing, silent conversation I have with her. So... And once I'd rumbled that thought, she may not be physically here or be able to answer, but I can fill in what, and I know what her response would be. And that I found enormously comforting and helpful so that I don't feel that she has, that she's gone and lost forever. Although, of course, physically she is, if that makes sense. I was so moved, um by, of course, this entire book, but I was so moved by the tributes to Joan from your friends and colleagues at the end of the book. It's not just the names, because, of course, you have a lot of famous friends, the both of you did. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, the, it's what they wrote about her. And, and after I know, reading... I know. After reading about your relationship, I, I actually had a good cry reading about what a remarkable person Joan was. And that's got to be so gratifying for you to see what others saw and felt that you knew to be true about your wife. Yeah, that was amazing because uh, going back to what you'd asked me earlier about her resistance, about um, telling people that she was terminally ill, that she was so determined not to be pitied or to be defined by that. And we counter-argued, Ollie and I, in saying that, you know, think of all the times we've been to memorials or funerals of friends and said, if only the person in the box could hear whatever we were saying about them. And I said, by telling people that you have, you know, months to live, it gives them the opportunity to express what they feel towards you. And she was so adamant that we shouldn't do that. And we overrode her on that. Um, because we said we weren't prepared to lie and and have the burden of having to keep this thing as a secret and have to pretend that she was fine when she wasn't. And the generosity and outpouring of love that was expressed in flowers and messages and visits and everything imaginable was so beyond what she could have anticipated that it buoyed up her spirits enormously and sort of hovercrafted her along. And she, she had the grace to say, a day after we had told uh, 30 people closest to us, she said, I realize how valuable this is mm. and that telling people is really helpful. Mm. And again, when all these people that she had worked with wrote their kind of eulogies to her, she got to read all of them before she died. And 
she was frankly astonished that that she was held in such high esteem by people because mm. I don't know whether it's an English thing or just a reticence of people think, well, you know, they can't really say what yeah. they really feel. Yeah, yeah, they withhold. So I'm very grateful for that. And that's the postscript of the, of the um, memoir of all the things that other people said about her, not just her husband yes. blowing her trumpet. <laughs> I'm so glad she had a chance to read some of them, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Richard E. Grant, thank you for this conversation, and thank you for sharing Joan with us. Thank you so much for all your incredibly informed questions and enthusiasm for the book. I can't tell you how grateful I am to you, Tanya. Thank you. Richard E. Grant is an award-winning actor and author of A Pocket Full of Happiness. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. NPR's editorial independence and integrity is non-negotiable. It's the reason why so many listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup. You'll get analysis and insight from the world's best correspondents. Listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup, only from NPR. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter.